Greyhound to trap one. Is that you, Yates? Where are you? Welcome to the Trap One Podcast. My name's Mark McManus. Today I'm delighted to welcome Jason McLaughlin back and we'll be talking about the epic first Doctor story, The Daleks Master Plan. Hi Jason, how are you? Yeah, I'm not too bad. It's great to be back, thank you. Uh, so you've been kept busy um, with the Millennium Falcon Made in Lego project recently, been following it on Twitter? Yeah, um, I was lucky enough for Bill buy me as a Christmas present, the ultimate collector's edition Millennium Falcon, um, a huge uh, Lego um, project, as you said, 7,500 pieces. Uh, the instruction manual was 400 pages long, and it took me about two weeks to put it all together. Brilliant. It looks absolutely fantastic. Any, anyone should um, check out on your Twitter feed. Just keep scrolling down from the, the pinned tweet. Uh, you can see the different stages of construction to the finished article. And uh, yeah, it looks an absolutely brilliant piece. Yeah, I had no idea how to do a time-lapse video. So I basically just took pictures as I went along uh, the various stages of like, you know, where I thought that's, that's a substantial enough update to take pictures and, and yeah. load it up. So yeah, there's a sort of bit-by-bit process of uh, me putting it all together. Yeah, it looks absolutely superb, I'd say. Yeah. Uh, so another collectible that's out today is is the Daleks Master Plan on vinyl. Um, a snip at only £100. Are you planning on buying this? Uh, I would love to, but um, what, I don't have £100 to spare at the moment. And two, I don't have a record player. <laughs> so uh, that's a bit of a yeah, two yeah. problems there. <laughs> like you said, it does look absolutely brilliant. Limited edition vinyl, um, and is it seven final records? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, because you've got um, Mission to the Unknown and then the 12 episodes of the Dalek Master Plan. I think there's a standard edition and a limited sort of Amazon only edition. Yeah, um, I think the Amazon only edition is um, is it um, either orange or yellow vinyl instead of usual black? Yeah, yeah, it's orange, I think, yeah. Uh, it looks really nice. I'm I'm sort of kind of tempted because I got a record player for Christmas, but I'm I'm sort of hoping it'll the standard edition will just get reduced eventually at some point. I think I'd, I'd struggle to justify a uh, hundred pound for it at the moment. Yeah, um, I'm, I mean I've still got all my old vinyl um, from back in the day. I've got some of my dad's old vinyl records, like um, original copies, pressings of uh, the Beatles Revolver and the White Album. Um, my mum handed me all her vinyl when she was going to throw it out because I was like don't throw it out you don't know what you've got there so I have literally got a stack of vinyl in one of my wardrobes that I just can't play at the moment and Mm. it's one of those things you always keep thinking I'll get a record player eventually you know I've seen the vinyl records you know on sale at HMV and the supermarkets are stocking them now and you think oh well you know I might get back into this but I just haven't got round to getting a record player. Yeah, there is a big resurgence, isn't it? And obviously Big Finish now are releasing a few bits and pieces on, on vinyl as well. So it's, uh... Yeah, they've done quite a few. Uh, with uh, some of the fucked off the stories. Yeah. Yeah, I got the Zygon Hunt. Um, it came out like a Sainsbury's exclusive, so I've got a copy of that. It's, uh, it's a good story, and I, I've uh, listened to it a couple of times on vinyl. Uh, cool. Uh, so the Daleks Master Plan with only three episodes currently available and in the archives um, 
there's the, the main way of experiencing them, I guess, is uh, is the CD uh, or the vinyl now, um, or the sort of loose cannon recons. Yeah, uh, I've done some of the loose cannon stuff, but um, years and years ago. Mm. And um, unfortunately, I've, I've been listening to the story like on CD, and I've obviously watched the um, the surviving episodes and the surviving clips. Yeah. Um, but I came across, and I don't know if they're actually the proper loose cannon ones, but literally only a couple of days ago, I came across um, some of the animated reconstructions that are on YouTube. And I think they're not obviously termed loose cannon because of, I don't know, you know, there's issues with the copyright, isn't there? And mm. whether people have put them up, like, you know, legally, if you can put something up like that legally or not. Yeah. Uh, and I got about, um, I watched the first episode the nightmare begins and i was quite astounded at how much they've come on um over the years because i remember the loose cannon uh, reconstructions which were basically glorified telly snaps set to a soundtrack yeah. similar to what we got on the the web of fear dvd release when uh, obviously episode three wasn't recovered and i saw the underwater menace dvd mm-hmm. for the missing episodes for those but yeah, I was kind of like very um, astounded at the ingenuity that they've they've put into uh, the rec- reconstructions now. And I understand Loose Cannon themselves have done, you know, some of the stories twice or even three times now. Yeah, it's great, especially with the Dalek ones because they have the, uh, the 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 lights flashing on the Daleks' heads, um, and they sort of I don't know computer animated or something like that, sort of within yeah. the scene. So they they're kind of moving around. Um, it's just control panels. They've got sort of like the swirling patterns and, and things like that going on. It does, uh, yeah, it adds a lot to it. And even just sort of moving the camera and panning a little bit across the telesnaps, I think, um, just makes it that much easier to watch, doesn't it? It does. And I think what impressed me, I think, even more, um, not only from the loose cannon point of view, but also from the animation for Mission to the Unknown, which Ian Levine's um, done, mm-hmm. is that we don't really have much reference material um, photography-wise for this epic storyline. Um, it's one of the few that didn't have telesnaps yeah. ever done for it. So the people who are doing these reconstructions are kind of like basically either doing them from memory if they were lucky enough to view the episode when, it was first, the, when they were first broadcast, mm-hmm. or they're basically just using dramatic license and you know thinking well that looks a kind of like similar design or go off that little corner a snippet of a photograph that we might have like that was taken you know when the the story was filmed yeah yeah so you mentioned the the mission to the unknown animation that's um i think easily the best way of experiencing that episode uh so this is, uh, obviously most people probably know, but this is a standalone episode that was broadcast before the Myth Makers uh, as a kind of a, a trailer for the Daleks' master plan. The only Doctor Who episode that doesn't have the Doctor or any companions in um, and follows two space security agents uh, who, <clears throat> who are sort of on the planet Kemble and spying on the Daleks. Uh, I think... Yeah. It's the debut of the Space Security Service, which yeah. was one of Terry Nation's like big things that he uh, wanted to seed off and and 
kind of like spin off into his own um, series about the Daleks that he tried to get uh, off the ground of quite a few times. Yeah, he tried to sort of get off the ground in America, didn't he? And uh, thought it was going to be a bit more kind of hard-edged and have these kind of space 007 characters in it. Yeah, and, and watching it, I was quite surprised about the... And again, again, you don't know whether this is actually how it was filmed or broadcast or whether it's the animators using a bit of dramatic license, but the kind of body horror when one of the astronauts gets um, infected by the Varga plant and yeah. slowly starts to it take him over, I thought that was quite very, very well done, very yeah. well animated and, and like kind of like, you know, quite a body horror aspect that you don't really get into Doctor Who until kind of like the the Hinchcliffe years. Yeah, yeah, you get it sort of like the arc in space and the seeds of doom, don't you? But this this seems like for the time not doesn't quite fit with the with the rest of it. But yeah, it does look great in the animation, the the sort of slow transformation. And then when you've got just the the human legs uh and the Varga plant kind of torso um an upper part of the body, um it does look really good. Yeah. Uh, and also the thing that I never picked up on before. But um, I think one of the characters says that the Varga plants were grown in laboratories and I thought, I'm surprised no one, and they may have done, um, retconned that as until one of like Davros's like old experiments that the Daleks now use as a weapon. Yeah, yeah, because it says they're from Scarrow, doesn't it? And uh, they've, they've brought yeah, them with them. Yeah, they originate on Scarrow. Yeah, it could be, couldn't it? Um, I've never listened to like the I Davros stuff from Big Finish or anything. It's kind of his, um, like his early years. So I guess it could be in there. Yeah, and uh, I mean, unfortunately, I've I've never read the two-part Target novelisation for this um, epic story, which was done by John Peel mm. and not the DJ. Um, yeah. <laughs> Um, which was done, I think, in the late 80s or early 90s. And I know he was very, um, he used to like tying things together. Mm. And he did some, like, hints in his adaptations of power of yeah. the Daleks and evil of the Daleks, very linked stuff together. So I'm, I don't, I'm assuming that perhaps, you know, he may have done some hints there for his uh, target novelization of. Yeah, I read them when they came out at the time, but I haven't. I've never revisited them. But I know what you mean because I remember I reread the Power of the Dalek one, uh, Power of the Daleks, a couple of years ago, and so the opening yeah. chapter it's like a, it's a sequel to the Tenth Planet, and then they have Unit and Sarah Jane Smith arriving, and um, it's uh, yeah, it's very continuity heavy. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, the other thing I liked, I think, um, where what occurred to me about this was it's like the, the Power of the Daleks animation that we got a couple of years ago as well. The Daleks really suit being animated, uh, especially in black and white. I think they, they look great. They do, don't they? Um, and I think that's probably, probably a very easy thing to animate, um, probably due to their design, aren't yeah. they? So it's the kind of thing that, obviously, with the aid of computers these days, that probably a lot of animation is done on. Um, I don't think people do tradi traditional cell animation anymore. But I suppose once you've got that um, kind of like Dalek shape and template in the computer to animate it's easier than to like just adapt and, and move them around but they work so well mm. yeah definitely there's um the, just something about the way even the way they move and everything it, it does look great on these on these animations yeah uh so then there's the uh so the myth makers happens in terms of, of uh watching doctor who chronologically 
And then we get yep. episode one, The Nightmare Begins. Um, they've all got great kind of B-movie kind of epic titles, haven't they? I love these. Uh, I was thinking that this time when I was listening to CDs and you get uh, the, the Lincoln narration from Peter Purvis and every time he comes out with a new title, it's, uh, it does sound like a classic B-movie. <laughs> yeah, Nightmare Begins, The Day of Armageddon, yeah. Devil's Planet. It, it goes on and, and most of one of the, the good things about this story is it does have some cracking cliffhangers as well. Yeah. Yeah, it makes you think of sort of, uh, you know, like kind of Flash Gordon or something, those kind of long serial things with loads of cliffhangers and uh, jumping from place to place. I just think like yeah. Doctor Who takes on that. Proper, I think for the first time in Doctor Who, a proper, I mean, I know we kind of had the, you saw this in, in The Chase, the, the previous Dalek story, but that was more like a fun kind of like romp where this is kind of like a proper intergalactic um, epic and it's kind of like um, I can only imagine what it was like if you were watching this as a kid back in 1965 because you would have been buying probably TV 21 comic with its Daleks comic strip and of it, again that was based on plot lines that um, Terry Nation was kind of like roughly giving to David Whittaker to write and that had hints of like the SSS as well and so it's kind of like almost as if you were watching this comic strip that you used to read about the Daleks then suddenly like come to life in a, in a Doctor Who story. Yeah. The, uh, the, the CD version, and I don't know, it's probably going to do the same on the, on the vinyl, I guess. It has like um, a pre-title sequence, this. It's got the end of the Myth Makers to sort of explain how Stephen's injured, um, that his, his kind of wounds become infected and things. And then it goes into the, the music, which feels really, really modern for a CD that came out in, in 2001, or, you know, like the modern series anyway. Yeah. And um, oh, that's very interesting, isn't it? Because obviously we haven't yet had the new series back with its kind of like pre-titles little scenes, which led into like the, what kind of like replaced the old cliffhangers back that we had for the classic series. Yeah. That would lead into the titles and then like say then lead into the main story yeah I guess at this point they're kind of taking the cue from American stuff maybe like the next generation and uh, uh, Babylon 5 and that kind of thing yeah and it gives it kind of like more of a feel doesn't it yeah yeah definitely so um, we've got uh, the Doctor Stephen and Katerina aboard, aboard the TARDIS because um, Katerina's joined at the very end of the Myth Makers leaving Vicky behind um, it's interesting, in the complete history, they, they talk about the, the early drafts of the scripts that they got from Terry Nation still had Vicky in them because they didn't know she was leaving at that point, which kind of made me wonder if they would have killed her off, like uh, your Katerina or Brett or Sarah doing this. Yes, Betty, on, that's a bit of a spoiler. We're not on, on to episode four, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, um, I, I think that's kind of like the thing because these stories are kind of like planned, planned so far in advance that you kind of like, it's this period, I think, that you kind of get the, the, the revolving door of companions, don't mm. you? Until it kind of like settles down again once Patrick Trouton comes on board. Yeah. So like I, I was reading up on this and I saw that obviously John Wells, the new producer who took over from Verity Lambert around this time and Donald Tosh, the script editor, had developed Katerina and obviously saw her as a potential as the companion, 
and then literally almost as the start of Dalek's master plan starts, they kind of like, I don't know whether they get cold feet or whether they just don't see the potential in her that they originally saw when they devised her, but it's no sooner has she kind of like joined and she's, it's an interesting take on a companion because obviously she comes from ancient Troy She's got this very much of like they're you know she calls the Daleks the evil ones. Mm-hmm. Um, she's kind of like you know bewitched almost by like you know the TARDIS and the Doctor, and that would be an interesting thing where they kind of like you know Philip Hinchcliffe and Rob Holmes did that with Leela later on uh, during their time, but it's kind of like I always feel like Katarina was kind of like a missed potential there as a companion because no sooner does she come on. And you've got real grounds there to kind of like do something with the character. And then they kind of like just basically, no, actually, we're not interested in doing it. And they they get rid of her. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Because even not long after that, I guess that you've got Jamie and Victoria as well, who then probably not from quite as primitive a a time, but kind of aren't aren't equipped to deal with all the kind of the the futuristic stuff that that comes along. Uh, I think it was interesting. um, One of the early things she says is... um, that I am to die, which I'd never noticed before. It's like a little bit of foreshadowing, isn't it? Because at this point, she thinks she's on this journey to the afterlife. Yeah. Uh, in the TARDIS, or to the place of perfection or something like that. It's um, it's quite some quite funny stuff there as well, because she thinks that the Doctor's God as well. Yeah, she does, yeah. And it's kind of like, I suppose if they'd really kept her throughout the story, then you could have actually been leading up to that. And obviously towards the end where obviously what happens to, you know, Sarah Kingdom, you could have then, I think that probably would have had a bit more emotional impact if had they, you know, kept Katerina around and had her, you know, suffer the same fate. But like I said, it's almost as if like they kind of like lose interest in the character as soon as they created her and kind of like then instruct Terry Nation to, you know, get rid and introduce her, one of your your space agents because she seems to be more dynamic and more like you know that's what we kind of like need to attract into the show Mm. yeah definitely one of the bits when uh, the doctor was talking to katarina um he says uh i'm not a god no not a god and it's brilliant the way william hartnell delivers the line because he the way he delivers it like there's a really kind of wistful way that kind of suggests that there's a backstory to that and obviously, in hindsight, yeah. now you can link it to like Underworld with the minions and things like that. But um, just just the way he delivers the line is is not just kind of a dismissive thing. He says it very thoughtfully, um, and uh, I, I like that a lot. I thought it was excellent. Well, I mean, like linking it into like obviously the, where the future of the, the show would go. You can even like link it into you know the whole Cartmel master plan of like yeah. the Doctor descendant from the other who was one of the godlike you know. Um, Time Lord who created the whole of like you know Gallifrey society. Yeah, the Rassilon Omega and, and the other sort of triumvirate, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so they they land on the planet Kemble where Brett Vian and Kurt Gantry, got the great macho names for these uh, these agents. Um, uh, they're sending a message back to Earth because they they know that the uh, the Daleks are up to no good. Um, yeah. Obviously, find out what's happened to Mark Corey, who was uh, one of the uh, astronauts and agents from the mission to the unknown, who 
was on Kemble previously. Yeah, and and they're all wiped out in the in the early one. But you managed to sort of uh, record a message just before the Daleks got to him. Um, but unfortunately, uh, Brett Vine's message isn't picked up because back at the communication centre on Earth, the, the only two people working there have been on a break. And when they come back, they're too busy arguing about what they're going to watch on TV to uh, to pick the message up. Um, which I thought it was a, it was a it was a good scene because there was some really good kind of world building in it. Um, but you'd think there'd be slightly more urgency attached to the uh, the communications desk that the, the space security force uh, or the space security service were, <laughs> were sending vital messages to. Just a little, but obviously they don't have uh, DVRs or video recorders, so they have to like watch what's on TV straight away, and they can't miss the latest episode. <laughs> <laughs> or even an answering machine they don't have today. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, there's some cool stuff in there, like what they say about the, um, like I say, world building. The, there's some kind of sports match going on between, I can't remember what it says, like Mars and Venus or something like that. Um, and then they introduce Mavic Chen by having him on the news, which again feels like a really modern, like a modern series way of, of introducing a character. I suppose you get it in the Daemons as well, don't you, a little bit, but uh, yeah. it does feel quite ahead of its time. It's almost a Russell T. Davis way of like introducing the character, isn't it? yeah. Um, and uh, learn that Mavic Chen's just finished negotiating a mineral agreement with the Fourth Galaxy, and that was uh, it says more complicated than he first expected. Yeah, trade deals are often more complicated than people think, aren't they? Oh, aren't <laughs> yeah. they, Josh? Yeah, uh, he probably before that said it was going to be the easiest deal in history. <laughs> I like to imagine. Well, I'm sure they're uh, kicking themselves now. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, and he's off on holiday um, in his spa. Which I also thought was a weird name for the ship, and I only I read the uh, you know the complete history um, for the Daleks' master plan this time, and it's short for space car. That's where the name comes from. Oh right, not just that he likes to you know have a jacuzzi and a, yeah. a massage table in there. Yeah, I always kind of pictured it a bit like that. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's space car. <laughs> Uh, the other thing I really liked about Kemble, especially because you can only really hear it on audio, is the like the jungle sound effects. I thought the the kind of screeching animals and all that sort of stuff. Well, yeah, they they work really really well on on audio, um, but also like then when you like move into seeing the jungle actually in episode two, which was one of the episodes that uh, was recovered, I think it was about two thousand and two. Two thousand four. Um, yeah, it's relatively recent, isn't yeah. it? I remember it. Um, they loaded it up on the then BBC um, website, mm-hmm. and you had to watch it in a very grainy, small, like square on Windows Media Player. Yeah. But it was just amazing to watch, like brand, kind of like brand new Doctor Who that nobody had ever really seen for yeah. for ages. And of the three that exist, it's it's the best one as well, isn't it? It is, yeah. Definitely. And it has those wonderful um, filmed scenes, which are obviously, I don't know how they've survived, but because they're on film with the Daleks burning the, the jungle down, they look absolutely beautiful, restored. Yeah, yeah they look fantastic. Yeah. And you get to see uh, the futuristic way that Mavic Chen holds his pen. Yeah, um, and does his squiggly <laughs> writing. Yeah, where he uses his sort of his little finger and his forefinger to to grip it against his other fingers. Yeah, um, 
and still uses a pen as well. He's, he's kind of a nice, nice kind of retro guy, isn't he? Well, it's nice to know that he doesn't go like to, uh, and all that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then you've got the uh, uh, the Galactic Council, all the different delegates. So you finally get to see them, and they do this kind of uh, like a competition to try and outdo each other in weird alien walks as they they come into the meeting room, which I, I really liked as well. <laughs> um, the delegate who seems to have lots of um, like black squishy balls stitched to his leotard. Yeah. <laughs> best walk uh, I found when I was watching the episode. <laughs> He's really going for that proper bouncy, like, I'm in zero gravity kind of, like, look. Yeah, yeah, like he's from a planet with really, uh, with much stronger gravity. <laughs> uh, yeah, the uh, one of the other things I read in Complete History was that Ma- um, in the first draft, Mavic Chen was called Ban Hoon, which uh, I just don't think it was the same, because the way Kevin Stoney, when he's always kind of grandstanding throughout all these episodes, and he keeps going, I... Mavic Chen. It just wouldn't be the same if he was going, I, Ban Hoong. So yeah, and I love that. the way the Daleks actually say his name in, uh, in that episode. They, they, they really emphasise the Mavic Yeah. Uh, and was it Balhoon? Yeah, <laughs> Ban Hoong. Yeah. That I don't think would quite have the same um, threat to it if a Dalek was saying that. Yeah, no, they definitely made made the right choice there. Yeah, and um, I think it's just been announced this week. These characters are all coming back for a Tom Baker big finish. Are they? Uh, yeah, I think it's called the Syndicate Master Plan. They've they've released the cover, I think, just in the last couple of days, um, and it's got all the delegates from the Dalek Master Plan in it. So uh, that'll be interesting to <laughs> see whether that's a prequel or, or what. Oh, that's very interesting. So uh, the the kind of the plot kicks off here because because uh, Zephon, who is master of the fifth galaxy, um, is being a bit of a diva and uh, refuses to come into the meeting on time. So he's just kind of strutting about outside, <laughs> um, which allows the, uh, the the doctor to uh, knock him out and the uh, the TARDIS crew tie him up and he re- doctor disguises himself in the cloak and, and infiltrates the meeting. Which obviously is like the clever old switcheroo, but um, I did, did like that scene before. Obviously, when Zephron's being like, say, a bit of a diva and, and he's talking to Maverick Chen, and it's just the way that shot is, I thought, by, and we've got to say that Douglas Canfield directed yeah. all 12 episodes of this, mm-hmm. which must have been a Herculean task for, for him. Yeah. Uh, but the way that kind of like dialogue scene where saying you're not coming into meeting and there's that line of dialogue i can't quite um, remember it at the moment where um mavic chen basically says well you know that i'm interested in more than just you know my galaxy and kind of like hints at like bars won't hold me but he's shot from behind those bars and i just thought that was a very very clever way of like emphasizing that obviously of the ambition that he's got to take over the galaxy yeah i hadn't spotted that but that's a really good point yeah uh so he's uh mavic chen is presenting the galactic council with his whole m of terranium um which it's taken 50 years to extract from uranus <laughs> <Yeah>. steady now <laughs> 
I always thought this again. This is another little kind of complete history uh, kind of thing. I always assumed that Terranium was a Terranation name because you know he, he kind of calls characters and things things that sound like his name. Like you often get like Tarrant characters and stuff like that in his stories. Yeah, and he so, loved the uh, the surname Tarrant, didn't he? Because several characters were called Tarrant, not only in Doctor Who but also in Blake Seven. Yeah, so I thought, well, that's that's Terry Nation. Um, but apparently it was John Wiles because originally it was going to be called something else, um, Vitranium or something like that. But they were worried that yeah, uh, they were wasn't worried, it? Yeah, they were worried William Hartnell would stumble over it every time he tried to say it. So they decided to take, change it to Terranium, and it was John Wiles that came up with it. So I was quite surprised about that because it seemed like a definite Terry Nationism. Uh, so having, having stolen the Terranium core um, while all the delegates are freaking out and jumping over desks and stuff because <laughs> the alarms are going off, uh, they, uh, uh, Brett, Katerina and Stephen steal the spa. Um, and I think Brett Vine is just brilliant. There's loads of scenes like this where he just walks in and he says something like, I'm taking control of this ship. <laughs> Um, he didn't, doesn't mess about at all like we're going to see in a couple of episodes time when um, uh, he shoots his old friend uh, the minute he realises that he's, uh, he's betrayed them he's just kind of a total no-nonsense character and Nicholas Courtney is like you say he's brilliant in the role but yeah. obviously we're kind of like there's there's a there's a scene between him and William Hartnell in, in Day of Armageddon where um Brett Viron is kind of like stamping his feet and saying, no, we are doing this. And mm. it's the way he obviously raises his voice in a very Brigadier-like kind of way that immediately just brings the Brigadier to, to your mind. Yeah. Uh, but what I liked about that then is obviously then William Hartnell equally gives us as good as he gets and kind of like says, no, we must, we must um, find out what the Daleks are doing, you know, and he's equally like, so he's the Doctor is kind of like saying, oh, well, I'm not going to be pushed around by you, and we need to really find out about, you know, what's happening here. So it kind of like puts Brett Viron in, in his place. Mm. Yeah, it's it's a great relationship between the two. Because um, uh, it starts off, obviously, with, uh, we, we didn't say in episode one, where he, he gets into the TARDIS and uh, tries to sort of take off without the Doctor to get back to Earth, because his, his mission's the, the whole thing. And the Doctor's got a magnetic chair that he, he traps him in. Um, for some reason, like for when he takes prisoners or whatever. <laughs> Just a, an odd one-off kind of TARDIS gadget, isn't it? Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of like glad we never thought that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it reminded me, because um, the third Doctor fits something similar to Bessie. Is it the Ambassadors of Death, where the, the guy gets stuck to the car when he tries yeah. to steal it? Yeah. I thought it's probably the same kind of technology he's still, still playing around with there. Uh, so uh, they having escaped from Kemble uh, in the episode three, the Devil's Planet. They land on Desperus, the prison planet, um, after being hit by the Daleks' neutronic randomizer. Um, so it's just the words, isn't it? Neutronic randomizer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the proper kind of sixties, sixties uh, sci-fi stuff, aren't they? Uh, this this obviously leads to disaster because the uh, some of these kind of savage prisoners that are on this planet try and try and board the ship. Uh, the Doctor sees a couple of them off by electrocuting them non-fatally, um, but uh, one of them 
gets aboard and manages to take Katarina prisoner, which is another cracking cliffhanger. It is, yeah, and obviously that leads into like um, you know that dilemma of, of, of what do they do, mm. and that wonderful scene which we've got. Obviously, the only scene from episode four um, where Brett Byron and the Doctor are arguing over what they do, but Katarina kind of like takes the decision out of their own hands. Yeah, hits the airlock control and uh, and takes them both out. Yeah, so it's great that um, you say that clips on the on the Lost in Time DVD set, and you get it right up to the moment she hits the door. Um, but it, qu- it works quite well because it then just the scene finishes and goes to black, and you, you sort of fill in the, the rest yourself, don't you? Yeah, yeah, and it's kind of like, it does have like quite an impact um, because it's probably is the first time. Um, and I suppose there's a debate here that fans have had for like many a year of it's the first instance of a companion actually dying in a story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and everything up to this point, if you were just watching it, would suggest she was the new companion because she joined at the end of the last story. Uh, she's travelling with the Doctor. She's she's like the the female, you know, the replacement for Vicky and Susan that you you would expect to have kind of a longer stint. Uh, so yeah, it must have been like a total shock at the time to viewers. Uh, interestingly, I was, I was trying to like read this because uh, I saw a YouTube video on on missing episodes, uh, and then I was trying to back up um, with what it stated that episode four was loaned to Blue Peter when they wanted to put kind of like that clip in one of their segments, and I think it's kind of like the same time when. They loaned them the tenth planet for to use the regeneration scene. Ah, right. Legend has it that apparently, um, when they loaned the episode to Blue Peter, the episode would never return to the archives. Mm. So hopefully that that makes it seem like it might be one that's that's in private hands that may one day reappear. I guess. Yeah, potentially. Um, just as a last minute thing, and I should have really like dug it out earlier, but obviously I've got the Richard Molesworth book, mm. White, uh, which is all about obviously how Doctor Who's uh, episodes in the sixties were, you know, were sold across the world, copied, went white, missing, uh, and how like you know episodes have been recovered since then. And I was trying desperately to try and find whether that is actually true or whether or not it's one of these urban myths that kind of like grows around um, certain missing episodes. Um, but I couldn't find anything to discredit uh, the fact that, you know, it's kind of like gone missing through private hands or anything like that. Yeah, because well, we were just talking before we started recording there that um, one of the guys who worked on the restoration team um, put a, a post out, obviously kind of went, kind of viral totally um, a couple of months ago that he believes that there are episodes in private hands that may one day be returned. Yeah, uh, Paul Van Zies, we were, his pronunciation I believe, uh, the person who made the tweet um, or, or the post. Uh, but yeah, he's kind of like more or less hinting that we know episodes are held by certain individuals, but at the moment they're not giving them up so mm. make of that what you will yeah 
um, I guess it's it's probably seen as as the most likely route now for them for them to come back. Yeah, because you you've obviously got um, his name escapes me at the moment. Phil, Phil Morris, isn't Phil it? Phil Morris, yeah. Yeah, who's um, has the company that recovered um, Weather Fear and the Enemy of the World, and I think his most recent acquisitions and returns to the BBC were a couple of um, episodes of Markham and Wise that were missing. Yeah. Uh, which I actually watched. I think they were shown on BBC Two. I think it was it Boxing Day. Yeah. Uh, so, um, so they see still finding stuff, but he he's forever hinting that there's more Doctor Who on the way, and there hasn't been any more Doctor Who found yet. So, well, I don't think um, you know there's any more um, rumored to be like um, found or anything. I do remember seeing on certainly the Gallifrey Base um, forum, and it was around Twitter as well. Um, I think it was about 2014, not long after the Enemy of the World and Weather Fear had been returned, that there was rumours of um, a couple of stories, and the Daleks Master Plan was one of those um, rumoured to have been found, but mm. nothing's come of it in the the five years since. Yeah, I remember that. It was sort of Marco Polo and, and Dalek's master plan were the, the two ones he kept hearing, weren't they? Yeah, and then obviously the conspiracy kind of like uh, even more so that Marco Polo was found because I think there's some screenshots of apparently there was, you know, when any of the world and whether fear were loaded up onto iTunes on the day that it was announced that they were, they've been returned um, and you could purchase them straight away and yeah and watch them um I, again you don't know whether it's a hoax whether someone's just very clever in photoshop but apparently a posting on itunes for marco polo was also put up at the same time and then swiftly removed so i think that's where that kind of like rumor really hasn't um died off and there's still people saying that yeah marco polo was found but either the prints were in that bad condition that they couldn't restore it or that it's such a time-consuming exercise that it's taking that long to restore the prints. Right. I didn't realise that about the iTunes thing. That is interesting. Yeah. Again, it could be just a clever hoax, similar to the the 10th Planet 4 hoax that happened in the early 90s. Mm. Yeah. Well, fingers crossed uh, we'll, we'll see some more. One day... In our lifetimes, yeah. So Katarina's bought the uh, the big bullet. Yeah, um, according to the complete history, Peter Purvis had an affair with Adrian Hill um, during the filming of uh, these episodes. Ah, oh. well, player. Hmm, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. And didn't uh, I think you said in a uh, conversation we had the other the other week that wasn't he um, also involved with Gene Marsh as well? Yeah, apparently so. Yeah, I'd, I'd read that somewhere, and I thought it was a complete history, but when I read it back, it wasn't there. So I googled it, and um, apparently it is in his autobiography. Um, when there was some some news stories around the time his autobiography came out, that he said he um, had an affair with Gene Marsh as well. Yeah, so it's uh, that's two see, when for you two in the that, I went, Oh God, because I know she was married to John Pertwee at one point, and I was kind of like thinking, was yeah. Peter Purvis responsible for? <laughs> John Perry divorcing, but then check the dates and um, 
they kind of like split up around about 1960. So uh, I don't think Peter Purvis was uh, responsible for that one. Yeah, I, I looked at the same thing actually. Yeah, and it was uh, yeah, it was well before, wasn't it? But uh, and they they don't seem like they were married for very long at all. Um, John Pertwee and Jim. Yeah. So, uh, I um, I do think I was saying to you was I, I used to follow Peter Purvis on Twitter, but now that Twitter shows you what other people like, um, so even if it's stuff that you don't follow, that their likes just pop up on your timeline. Uh, and yeah. I'm seeing kind of Nigel Farage and and a lot of kind of crap showing up. So uh, uh, I just quietly unfollowed him at that point. Yeah, you should try not really interested in what your heroes think about certain things, especially if they don't like um, tally with your own political views. Um, yeah, and a friend of mine had an experience with John Rhys Davis recently at Wales Comic Con, where he went to get his autograph because he's a big Indiana Jones and Lord of the Rings fan, mm. and then was proceeded to give him a 20-minute lecture before he handed him his autograph about how the benefits of Brexit and how it's going to be the best thing for Britain ever. And obviously, um, being somebody who voted Remain, he, <laughs> my friend was kind of like just stood there going, I really don't like you at this moment and I really don't want to tell you what I actually think because I think you'll rip the autograph up in my face. <laughs> I was almost about to tell him, stick your autograph where the sun doesn't shine when he just handed him his autograph and he went, thanks for listening. And, you know, he bewilderedly walked away and thought, my God, what did I just have to listen to? Yeah, that's so disappointing. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I guess Peter Purvis doesn't actually tweet anything. It's just, um, if you, just if you look at his likes, he kind of gives you a, a window into his views, I think, which... Uh, yeah, like you say, d- d- don't tally with mine. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, what about you? Do you do you tend to think of Katerina as a companion? Um, yeah, I do. Um, I'm not one of these people who kind of like um, says, "Well, you know, she wasn't really there around that long, so um, she's not a companion." Um, same with um, Sarah Kingdom mm-hmm. or Sarah Kingdom, however you want to pronounce it. Um, you know, they travelled in the TARDIS. They were, you know, around and, you know, I think they, they fulfil that companion criteria. Um, much in the way, same way that, um, obviously, there's a, there's a debate over the new series, wasn't there, when Adam joined yeah. the TARDIS very, very briefly at the end of Dalek and into the long game. Do you know what? He, he came on board as a companion. He didn't kind of like pass the test as it were but I still consider him a companion because he with all intentions travelled but then did the wrong thing so Ninth Doctor kicked him out um, you know but I know some fans also consider Astrid a companion and it's like well no because she didn't kind of like join the Doctor she was with him for one adventure she didn't even travel in the TARDIS yeah. which seems for me is kind of like the defining criteria they're in the day and they want to journey with the Doctor and they travel in the TARDIS, I think you should really class them as a companion. Yeah, I think the same. Um, like The same kind of thing. I wouldn't class Brett as a companion, even though he sort of very travels with the characters for a few episodes, but it's not in the TARDIS, is it? Um, no. It's, it's aboard the Spa and, uh, and whatnot. So, um, yeah, I, I, I'd agree. I think uh, Sarah and Katerina, I, I tend to think of as companions as well. 
And obviously Big Finish have used those kind of like the gaps within the story, haven't they? And kind of like um, had G Marsh do a couple of companion chronicles, um, telling of like, you know, untold adventures between her, the first Doctor and, and Stephen as well. Yeah, and in Day of the Doctor in the Black Archive, um, there's uh, there's that kind of photo board, isn't there? And I think it's um, I think it's got Sarah Kingdom and Mike Yates together in a That's, scene. I've forgotten about that. Uh, so yeah, even even kind of canonically, there's uh, there's suggestions that there was more that went on there. So yeah, I like think that was a, a first and third Doctor team up that we didn't get to see. I'm sure Big Finish will fill in the gap somewhere. <laughs> you got David Bradley and uh, Trim Trelaw, or however you pronounce his surname. Yeah. Um, probably to a spin off adventure. I'm sure they could uh, put that in there. Yeah, yeah. It's only a matter of time. Yeah. Uh, so the, uh, the having stolen the, the spa, escaped from, escaped from Desperous. Sorry, we're way past that. But yeah, Katarina's been killed. They arrive on Earth to go and see uh, Daxter who's Brett's oldest friend, who's going to help them at this secret research lab. Uh, but the Doctor quickly susses that um, that he's in on the, the, the plan with Mavic Chen because he starts talking about Terranium when they haven't told him about Terranium. See, it's always the villains who let themselves slip. They just don't um, think about what they're saying, do they? But, uh, and again, Brett just killed, like he's, I think the, well, the narration sort of says he pauses for a second and then just shoots him. Um, so yeah, he's totally still kind of um, in charge, full of action. The doctor berates him for for, for killing. Him. He calls him a stupid idiot or something like that, doesn't he? Idiotic fool or something. Um, but then Sarah Kingdom arrives, having been um, sent by Mavic Chen, uh, and kills Brett. Just guns him down right there. So just in the same episode as Katarina. Brett's been shot as well. Um, it kind of really raises the stakes. It's kind of uh, four episodes in, which I guess is, you know, the length of a lot of uh, a lot of Doctor Who stories. Suddenly, the yeah. stakes are raised, and it, it get a, an idea. It's this really ruthless world that they're in. And obviously, it's kind of like that thing of like, you know, if you're viewing this in the context of when it was broadcast, these stories all have individual episode titles, don't they? Yeah. You don't. You're not aware of this story being a twelve-part Dalek story. You're just watching it from week to week. So these twists are coming thick and fast, and you just must, as a viewer, you must have just been a gag like, as in, what? What? What's going on here? But yeah, I mean, Brett Viron's very kind of like ruthless, kind of. Like, you kind of get a sense that probably Terry Nation based him on Sean Connery's James Bond, who was obviously mm. huge at the time with, um, you know, uh, those films that were out. And then he kind of like pulls the rug from under your feet by killing off what you think is probably one of the main characters that's going to go through the whole story. Yeah. And then in, in the next episode, Counterplot, we learn that Sarah is actually Brett's sister, uh, which is another big twist, which um, I don't know, it's kind of not much is made of it, but it's, uh, I guess it's part of the, um, part of Sarah becoming friends with the Doctor and Stephen at that point, isn't it? And um, her kind yeah. of coming over to their side. Because he shows them, it's like, well, if Brett believed in you and Brett was with you, then I can trust you too now. Mm. But like you say, it's kind of like the thing, of, it's the difference between obviously how the classic series used to do things and how the new series like 
does things. And like you say, that kind of plot twist, they would have made a, a, a much, much bigger deal of, uh, you know, if this story was being done today. Yeah, yeah, the emotion would have been, uh, and the music would have been much more uh, kind of uh, at the forefront, wouldn't it? It would have been, yeah. So they've been accidentally teleported to the planet Myra with some mice, uh, which was part of an experiment that was gone on at the research place where, where Daxter worked. Which uh, immediately just brought back memories when I watched this episode, um, you know, in between, obviously, you know, because it exists, so you, you flip from CD to, to you know, DVD. Yeah. Um, just immediately brought back memories of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy with the, the mice running the Earth. Yeah, I thought that as well, because they're white mice, the same as Hitchhiker's Guide to the are. Galaxy, aren't they? Um, and then uh, the, the mice get killed by the Daleks, which um, I kind of felt like more kids would have had mice as pets in the 60s. Uh, so it was probably, um, you know, probably kind of quite a hard thing for them to watch. Well, so in like, little more than two episodes, we've killed off a companion. We've killed off like one of the Doctor's kind of like supporting characters, friends, and also killed off mice in this yeah. story. <laughs> So barbaric, it's ridiculous. Body count is stacking up tremendously, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then there's some vi- invisible aliens on the planet Myra. Um, uh, the very nice, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he revisits this in, in um, Planet of the Daleks, doesn't he, with the uh, the Spiridons as well. Yeah, uh, I mean, and again, obviously, um, going through this story again, because it's been ages since, obviously, I've last kind of... Like, watched or listened to it I was just struck by obviously how many ideas that Terry Nation kind of like recycles because even like the Varga plants from you know Mission to the Unknown were kind of like also hinted at in there's a variation of that in Planet of the Daleks with that fungus that starts to take over people and and um, Joe gets infected by it as well and it's just kind of like he's never want to throw out a good idea (laughs) is he no, I've um, I've been listening to the uh, the Dalek audio annuals as well. Um, oh yeah, which uh, I'm going to talk about on an upcoming podcast. Um, and yeah, there's so much stuff that because uh, these are the the stories from the annuals that I think some of them are sort of ideas that were for the TV series that he was going to do. They were, uh, yeah, and I've I've got a couple of those uh, still upstairs. Yeah, I think a 1977 one and the 1978 annual, if I remember rightly. Yeah, I think those they did them for four consecutive years. I think it was 76, uh, 75, 76, 77, 78. Um, and there's, uh, yeah, there's loads of stuff that um, that you recognise from Dalek stories on Doctor Who as well. Yeah. Yeah, because so. obviously that follows, I think there's even, really uses his names, doesn't it? I think there's, some of the stories feature Mark Corey. Yeah. Uh, and Brightly, the, the Space Security Service. And also he then morphs that into the, is it the Anti-Dalek Task Force? Yeah. Yeah, the anti-Dalek task force, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. does not like good ideas at all. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the, uh, the, the, they managed to escape from the planet Myra because the invisible aliens attack the Daleks. Um, and I thought the funny thing was here because they say they're kind of eight feet tall. Um, and when, when Stephen shoots at the Visions, the Doctor's saying, hey, aim high because they're tall. Uh, so suddenly he's um, he's quite happy with killing them because he, having uh, having told Brett Vianoff for um, for for killing Daxter 
Um, and then even when he sort of electrocutes the, the prisoners on Desperus that were trying to get a, um, aboard the ship, he says, uh, you know, I'm not interested in killing anybody. I've just knocked them out and stuff. <laughs> but yeah, he's totally reversed that here. And he's, he's encouraging Stephen to, to aim high to uh, start blasting away at these Vizians. Yeah, it turns out the Doctor's a racist. He yeah. doesn't like uh, humans, but he'll kill aliens at the drop of a hat. Yeah. Um, and I think because he already knows about the Visions on this planet, doesn't he? Which is, is unusual for the first Doctor. In most planets he lands on, he, he doesn't have that much of a knowledge of. I always think of it as a sort of a Pertwee onwards thing where he already knows quite a bit about different aliens and planets. Yeah, and it is, because you, you really don't kind of like get much of that kind of continuity at all or kind of like hints at other adventures or anything and like you say that does kind of like become a, a kind of like a, a, not a cliche or but a story um, trope that is then used later on in other series oh yeah I've heard of that alien race oh yeah I've been to this planet you know and it's I think it's one of the first instances where it's used here yeah uh so they, uh, as I say, they, they manage, this time they steal the Dalek ship, don't they, um, to escape from Myra. I can't write in saying that. That's right, yeah. Um, and then we, uh, they uh, head back to Campbell, don't they? Yeah, so they uh, go into episode six, uh, Coronas of the Sun. Uh, and this is where Dennis Spooner takes over as the writer, isn't it? I think uh, based, is, it is. They're based on an idea by Terry Nation. Uh, That's right, yeah. Um I'm reminded of, um, I think it was a Donald Tosh uh, interview, and he famously said that obviously he was script editor during this time, and like you say, Terry Nation was very famous for kind of just basically writing something very, very quickly, very basically, and um, also used to be sometimes famously late delivering his scripts. Mm. There's a quote from Donald Tosh that said, uh, he would constantly have to chase Terry Nation for his scripts and then he would get either a phone call or some kind of communication that, Terry, oh, I'll, I'll drop the script off tonight and then there would be a taxi that would whiz round to Donald Tosh's house, something would pop through the letterbox and then, you know, the taxi would whisk away and Donald Tosh said that he came like, oh, brilliant, Terry's delivered his latest episode only to open the envelope and it would be like four or five pages of a brief synopsis with basically saying with a note at the bottom saying fill in the blanks yeah. <laughs> whether that's true or not I don't think Terry Nation was that unprofessional but I think even Terry Sticks used to say that Terry Nation would basically do a first draft and say that'll do and have yeah. it in and then not do any rewrites at all I, I was going to say something really similar there, actually. I, I saw Donald Tosh uh, at a convention in 2014, um, and yeah, he was basically tell, telling that story. He was saying that the, the last six episodes, the one that um, the ones that Dennis Spooner wrote, they had in plenty of time, and they were still waiting for the first six. Um, yeah. And that, yeah, um, Terry Nation dropped them off at his house on his way to Hollywood. He was on, like, the airport was on the way to the taxi. Um, and he handed this envelope and then ran back to the, to the taxi. He, said he looked at this envelope and he thought, there's supposed to be six 25-minute episodes in here, and it's a very, very thin epi uh, thin envelope. Uh, so he was saying that he basically wrote them. He said he had interview input from Dennis Spooner and John Wiles and Douglas Canfield, but he actually had to sit down and, and write them and flesh them out. Yeah, I mean, I think I read as well that I think Terry Nation at this time had, had just taken on... Uh, 
working on one of the ITC um, American like stroke English adventure shows that used to be on ITV a lot during the 60s and 70s I think it was called The Baron yeah because he took that on and obviously he was inundated with the work on that he kind of like kind of like just put Doctor Who to the side didn't he yeah it seems like it um yeah, uh, that's yeah, that's what's in the complete history as well that he was working on the Baron, uh, which history is forgotten while we're still talking about Doctor Who. Yeah, it's it's one of the probably ITC theories that doesn't really um, kind of like sit in anybody's memories anymore. Obviously, it's stuff like you know uh, the Prisoner, Danger Man, the Saint, the Avengers, mm-hmm. uh, the Persuaders. You know, they kind of like linger in people's memories and people have fun memories of that stuff but other stuff that's kind of like you know and there was loads of these shows um back in the day and obviously i remember these because they channel four when channel four first started used to like fill their airtime with loads of these repeats mm. and i think some of them also used to turn up on bbc2 as well as well as itv um but yeah the baron isn't one that i don't think anybody particularly really remembers no, it's not not one you ever see talked about. Yeah, maybe it'll uh, get a, a Blu-ray release and everybody will reevaluate it. And uh, well, that's one for network uh, to so, probably yeah. put out because I don't get ITV are probably that interested in that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, and we'll we'll find out why he uh, he's paid such scant attention to his uh, Dalek Master Plan script. Uh, so the uh, the old escape are saying the Dalek pursuit ship. Uh, and once on board, they decide they're going to make a fake Terranium core, um, which luckily the Dalek ship has all the materials they need aboard to make, um, but they can't get it to glow like the real thing. Um, and Stephen thinks if he plugs the, the, the gravity force from the ship's engine into it, maybe it'll it'll glow. The doctor says, no, that's a crazy idea. It'll never work. But he does it anyway. Um, electrocutes and nearly kills himself. But it does make the Terranium core... Um, replacement glow so uh they uh they yeah it's at this point isn't it they uh they they then um have to hand over the the terranium on kemble um but the doctor's got a cunning plan because steven's given himself accidentally a temporary force field um with this uh this kind of suffusion of uh of gravity energy so he hands it over and escapes being uh, exterminated. They all run in the TARDIS and, and dematerialise. Whereas, like, if they've done this, obviously, in the new series, it's established that the TARDIS has a kind of, like, outer force field anyway, so they could have just, like, stayed in that and handed the terranium core, like, just at arm's length. Yeah. Uh, but obviously, that, that, that isn't anything that was probably conceived of back back then. No, but the, the Doctor does say something like the TARDIS has got some kind of gravity force field in this, doesn't he? But um, Yeah. It's so kind of... Uh, the days before continuity really meant a lot, isn't it, uh, I guess? that. Uh, yeah, and I think from one production team like, moving on to another production team, they really didn't have much regard for like, kind of like what had gone before, did they? No, it seems like... Um, like William Hartnell was the main one that was sort of interested in continuity in these days. You know, you watch the uh, the adventure in space and time. You've got the yeah. scenes where he's insisting on using the same controls to take off and, and for the, the central column to be rising. And uh, the uh, it, it's a couple of episodes from where we are, but when the Doctor unlocks the TARDIS using, the, using his ring, 
sort of uh, reflects the sunlight using his ring onto the lock. And apparently when he read that in the script, he didn't like it because he felt that it contradicted established facts as well. Uh, so it's quite interesting that he was there as this sort of uh, guardian of, of continuity and stuff. Well, yeah, because it kind of like whether like other kind of like little snippet were Hartnell or whether you know it may have been something that Nation or Spooner put in. And there's a there's a reference in Day of Armageddon, isn't there, to the Dalek invasion of Earth, where they even quote the year that they that story happens, twenty one fifty seven. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's search your history books. And you'll find out about the Daleks, and that's why we must stop them. And I thought that that was a very nice little callback, and it's kind of like the thing you really didn't get a lot of uh, back in the 1960s in that era. No, yeah, totally. Yeah, because this is set in the year 4000, isn't it? So it, yeah, yeah, it's well over a thousand years. I guess nearly two thousand years after uh, after the events of the Dalek invasion of Earth. So it would have sort of passed well into history by that stage. Uh, and obviously, a lot of civilization was destroyed by it. So I guess a lot of records as well were uh, uh, would have not maybe made it. Uh, so then we've got episode seven, the Feast of Stephen. Yeah, <laughs> this is a, a peculiar one, isn't it? Yeah, I think because I think you read somewhere this is the least likely one ever to be found, isn't it? Because it was never sold abroad. Um, well, um, obviously, just reading up on this kind of thing, it was actually because the Daleks master plan was only ever sold to Australia, um, uh, where they promptly viewed it and said, uh, no, sorry, it's too violent and we're not broadcasting it. And they allegedly, apparently, sent it back or kept the prints or the prints were destroyed or whatever. But the Feast of Stephen was never copied as part of that. They decided to take it out because it was a... An episode specific to Christmas Day, wasn't it? Yeah. Obviously, if this was broadcast at any other time of year by any other station around the world, it would you know, stick out like a sore thumb. These <laughs> days, you get Christmas specials repeated in July, but obviously yeah. back then, it must have been an important thing for them. So the Feast of Stephen, they do say, is the one, unless the original print is found, but they, they say it was never copied, Mm-hmm. and the original videotape was white, is probably if the rest of the missing episodes are ever found, returned, whatever, that will be the only one that we will never, ever see again. It's not a great loss, is it, in the not scheme of no. things? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but the original plan was to kind of like do a spoof with Zed cars, wasn't it? Yeah, the, the, yeah, they wanted to do a bit of a crossover, which again is, is well ahead of its time, isn't it, to do a crossover. But the, uh, the, the I can say showrunner, whatever they had, the, the producer who was in charge of Zed Cars, uh, just flat out said no, didn't he? Because he wanted to keep that as quite a serious, gritty program. And yeah, if, uh, if only the producer of EastEnders had said the same in 1993. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I forgot. Yeah, that's the uh, that's the other crossover, isn't it? And then yeah. wasn't there? Um, it was it the uh, one of the monk stories, wasn't it, in series ten that they they were going to do a crossover with Holby City, but I think it was I think the scenes were cut before it was broadcast. Really? I I might be misremembering that. I'm sure there was. I'm sure. Is it the lie of the land? No, not the the one. The pyramid at the end of the. Actually, I can't remember. I'm sure there's something about one of those stories that there was going to have some scenes in, in Holby City Hospital. 
um, with with the characters from that. Oh right, okay. Well, that, I mean that's not too bad because it, obviously if it was done seriously, then it would have been a kind of like a nice little nod and a wink to the audience. But it's obviously when you kind of like verge into the territory of spoof, that's where you kind of like uh, you know, you kind of like dicing with uh, the audience, aren't you? Of uh, whether or not they then take the both shows seriously. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so the the plot doesn't really the the plot doesn't at all doesn't advance in this, does it? I think there's one mention of the the Terranium Core and the Daleks sort of um, in the middle, um, but other than that, they they arrive in the north, um, where the the accents are just kind of vaguely Yorkshire mainly, aren't they? A lot of people going, oh I. Well, yeah, they're certainly not Liverpudlian, whereas obviously <laughs> Z cars was a, a, a set, so you know. Cause, yeah, you say they're cod northern. Yeah, and Stephen starts doing a, a Scouse accent, and he sort of says, "Well, everybody else is doing it," which he kind of think was probably a remnant of the original script, maybe because nobody's doing a Scouse accent. Yeah, and then they ended up in America during the uh, in Hollywood in the like silent film days. Yeah, yeah, you've got all these kind of Keystone Cops and uh, Charlie Chaplin stuff going on as well, haven't you? But I suppose this episode is, if it's memorable for one thing, it's for William Hartnell breaking the fourth wall and wishing all the viewers at home a Merry Christmas. Yeah, <laughs> that was something that, that Donald Tosh uh, said when I saw him on the uh, on the stage at the convention. He was saying that uh, he thought John Wiles was going to have a heart attack when that happened. He said that he just kind of uh, went a fully funny colour and, and got really angry about it. Well, it, for years, I think they basically said it was an ad lib that was done by William Hartnell, but I mm. think that's since been discredited because it's actually in, uh, I believe, the actual camera script for the day. So obviously, it was scripted. Ah, right. Yeah. Um, oh, that's so interesting. Anfield, um, that you know was was found like a fair few years back that they said it's actually there and it's tight so it, it wasn't an ad lib that William Hartnell decided to do right but it's just whether kind of... Douglas Canfield decided to oh this would be fun mm. you know wasn't part of what Dennis Spooner had written I don't I, I don't think we'll ever know but yeah it wasn't an ad lib as the uh, the rumours say ah right ah yeah it's just something that's kind of passed into mythology then isn't it that uh, yeah that William Hartnell just did it off the cuff, yeah. Because the other kind of slightly fourth wall breaking thing he does before that is um, one of the extras, I think, in the police station. Um, he recognises from the marketplace in Jaffa, from from the Crusade story. <laughs> uh, he says something like, "Don't I know you?" And he says, "Oh yeah, the marketplace in Jaffa." So he kind of um, it's, it's it's already heading in that direction as well, isn't it? At that point, uh, yeah. Kind of like that old adage of what Douglas Adams used to say. It's like, you know, you can write something that is funny um, for when he was doing Doctor Who, and he says what it has to be done is have, has to absolutely be played straight by the actors. Mm. He says the bit you kind of like break the fourth wall or start doing silly voices or start sending it up in any kind of way, that's when you kind of like lose you know the show the audience and they start to like not take it seriously yeah yeah definitely i think the the one of the best things about this episode is is the doctor's line when he says uh i'm a citizen of the universe and a gentleman to boot and it's such a such a great heart in the line and i love the way he delivers it 
and it's one that's been I think been quoted on several like you know uh, merchandise and yeah. like calendars and and all of it ever since whenever you see something first doctor related but it like you say it's a great quote yeah yeah definitely uh so having uh, having escaped from hollywood uh the uh we're going to episode 8 volcano uh this is where the daleks test out the time destructor and find that it doesn't work because the terranium cores are fake. And they were going to test it out one of the delegates called Trantis, um, but they uh, exterminate him anyway. And then they summon up a time machine like the one they had in the chase. Which kind of makes you wonder why they didn't use this all along. <laughs> uh, they could have, you know, sort of got the, not waited 50 years for the terranium core and that kind of thing. So, but yeah. doesn't do to think too hard about these things, does it? No, it doesn't. No. <laughs> <laughs> and I think a nice fake out here when the TARDIS, uh, the Doctor's TARDIS, detects that it's being followed, and you think it's the Daleks, but it's actually the meddling monk, um, which is like the first, apart from the Daleks, the first returning villain as well. It is, isn't it? Yeah, and it's uh, it's a shame we never saw more of Peter Butterworth because he. He's such a great actor in that role. He was yeah. great, in, obviously, in The Time Meddler, but it's great for him to pop up in a couple of episodes here. Yeah. Yeah, I think he's I think he's brilliant. It'd have been great if he'd been back more often, I think. Um, and if he'd faced Troughton as well, because it occurred to me watching, watching him this time, or listening to him this time, that there are some similarities with Troughton's performance as the Doctor. Uh, yeah. They would have been a great pair up on, on screen, I think. I think that, like you say, there's similarities there, and perhaps that may be one of the reasons why they didn't decide to like utilize him or bring him back. Because certainly, when you're watching episode ten, because that one exists as well, mm-hmm. uh, you kind of like I was struck by just how similar he was, even sometimes down to the mannerisms. Yes, he's wearing a slightly different like costume and stuff, but there's still that kind of like thing where he's does that little crouchy thing that Troughton does and sometimes rubs his hands, you know, yeah. which again is the Troughton trait. And it's interesting to see whether, you know, I don't know, did Patrick Troughton watch these episodes with his family, you know, um, before he was offered Doctor Who? Is that something that he's, he subconsciously picked up on? It's the kind of thing that you uh, pop through your mind when you're watching it. Yeah, yeah, it could well be, couldn't it? Um, but, uh, yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a great character. Um, have you heard any of the big Finnish stories where Rufus Hound plays the monk? No, but um, obviously he turned up again uh, during the Eighth Doctor uh, Big Finnish audios, played by Graham Garden. Um, so I enjoyed those because those were the uh, I think the last series with Lucy Miller uh, yeah. that they did. I've forgotten about that actually. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but I've not heard Rufus Hound's version of, of the monk yet. I've only heard him in Doom Coalition, I think, but uh, yeah, it was uh, he's he's very good as well. Uh, there's uh, I remember when I watched Utopia and I was watching it with a mate, and we, you know the, when um, the Master regenerates into John Sim and he's in the TARDIS and he's he's saying to the Doctor, uh, "Say my name," uh, and we were saying it'd be great if uh, the Doctor had gone meddling monk <laughs> uh, instead of Master. But, uh, yeah, it'd be, it'd be great to have him back in the in the TV series. Uh, one day, it'd be obviously. Well, because you know, I don't think any like kind of like those kind of characters are. They're as timeless as the Doctor, aren't they? And I think yeah. the Doctor's worked well with 
a kind of like a, a similar antagonist. You know, obviously the master's been brilliant through the years. We then had like a few episodes with the Rani, and I think the Rani could have easily have been brought back in the new series as well. Yeah, uh, and you've had obviously the the flip with John Sims master, and then you've had Michelle uh, Gomez, not Gomez. <sighs> What's her, what's her surname now? It is Michelle Gomez, isn't it? It is, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So I've just had a <laughs> memory lapse then. Yeah, uh, her version of Missy. So I kind of like, you know, perhaps that's something that they could, you know, feasibly like look into bringing back. Yeah, it'd be good because the monkey isn't out and out evil. Um, it's He's kind of, uh, you can have him as a sometimes ally, a sometimes enemy. So it'd be, uh, yeah, I, I think you're great to have him back. And I, lo- I love it when the Doctor and the Monk meet because uh, they, they arrive on the planet Tigus, um, and it's it's like the Third Doctor and the Master. I think There's, they're quite sort of civil and gentlemanly, and like sussing each other out and that. It's um, it's, it's it's a great scene. It's not just openly hostile when they when they meet each other again. Yeah, and uh, there's I mean there's a few fans, haven't they? Who kind of like tried to suggest that you know the meddling monk is actually an earlier version of the master and that's not one that i ever kind of like think because i do think like you say they are you know completely different characters the meddling monk is very mischievous and isn't always out for you know evil means whereas the master is like you know um the majority of the time completely evil and wants to basically like you know take over the universe or you know, bow the universe down to him. So yeah, they're not the characters in my book. No, there's nothing kind of power hungry about the monk, is there? No, he's, he's far pettier than that. I think. Yeah. Um, whereas um, I think the um, how would you call it? The war. Is it the war chief? Oh yes, the war chief from the war games. Yeah, I do kind of think he could be the master. Yeah, I, I would say if you, if that became canon. Yeah, and that's an earlier version of the master. I wouldn't have a problem with that because I think Edward Brayshaw uh, in that story is brilliant, and he also has the the goatee mustache as well and beard. Yeah. So, yeah, and plays it very, very like the master as well. Um, yeah, even down to um, allying himself with with other aliens to to further his own interests. Uh, so, moving on to episode nine, uh, Golden Death. This is, uh, they end up in ancient Egypt. So it's still kind of a bit of a runaround, isn't it, as it has been since the Feast of Stephen, but I, I think the monk lifts it. I think without the monk, the, these episodes would be a lot less interesting. Yeah, but it's a nice kind of like change of pace because we've gone from the, and it obviously showed the broadness of the adventure. Uh, and I presume this was obviously in Terry Nation's original like outline for it, which Dennis Spoon is now picking up. But mm. we've gone from obviously the the year four thousand and hopping from planet to planet, and now we find ourselves out in ancient Egypt. And even though you can kind of like get a sense of like you know, you know, as Doctor Who was made back then on a limited budget, it is obviously it gives it that kind of like that bit more of an epic scale. Mm. And even then, when you see it in episode 10, it's very well realised, even though it's kind of like filmed on quite close sets. The model shots are, are exceptionally good. Yeah, they are. They, yeah, cause you say episode 10 is the, the sort of final existing one. Um, and when you've got the model of the, the pyramids, it, it, it does look excellent. And the inside of the tomb and everything. 
That looks really Which good. Which is something like BBC always used to do like really well. It was always good at doing historical and costume kind of dramas, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, so you got these these poor Egyptians who were who were up against the Daleks. Um yeah, but driving did, the war machines. Yeah. Um I did quite like the way they kind of came up with a bit of an ingenious way of incapacitating them though, by they've got all these obviously rocks lying around which are the building materials for the pyramids and they uh start piling them up around the bases of the Daleks to stop them being able to move. It's uh, quite a good solution, I thought. Yeah, well, then a lot of them also get exterminated completely, don't they? So they do, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, they don't come out of it very well. Yeah, that's true. Uh, but so in the meantime, the Doctor um, messes with the Monk's TARDIS again, like he did in the Time Meddler, um, makes it look like a police telephone box and steals his uh, directional unit. I think you would have learned to lock it by now. Yeah, and the poor monk ends up on a nice planet then, doesn't yeah. he? Uh, but yeah, it's a nice, nice that you see where he arrives next and uh, sort of complaining that he'll be wandering lost in time and space like the Doctor and swearing his revenge. But swearing that you'll get the Doctor eventually. Yeah, yeah, that, that's, um, that scene, that's, that's where you think, oh, I, wish I, I wish they had brought him back. Uh, maybe even for like it would have been a good maybe final William Hartnell story like a, a final rematch or something yeah well I mean it could have easily because the 10th planet that, like in the North Pole you could have easily said that like, the Met Monk was <laughs> um, wasn't actually on an ice planet he was actually stuck in the North Pole and then he was taken in by the uh, the, the station and then yeah. he's, he found his way in there so yeah that well, it's that kind of foreshadowing that I like we said, that the the classic series never really kind of like did or planned that much ahead, did they? No, that's true. Yeah, it seemed like there's a lot of a uh, lot of behind the scenes changes as well, aren't there? So uh, yeah, um, but yeah, this is a good episode to exist. I think there's quite a bit of action. Uh, it's good to be able to see Peter Butterworth as the monk, and uh, the the Doctor finally has to hand over the Terranium Core in exchange for. The release of Sarah and Stephen uh, and the monk. Uh, the doctor's wearing his nice little, uh, you know, um, kind of like straw hat. Yeah, it's like a Panama hat or something, isn't it? Yeah, it's quite cool. Look, he looks like a <laughs> sort of a tourist walking around Egypt. Uh, so, having handed over to Rainium Corps, the monk's taken off. The Daleks have, uh, have taken off back to Kemble. Um, <laughs> The one chance the Doctor's got is to, is to plug the directional unit in, of the Monk's TARDIS into his TARDIS uh, to see whether it'll work. But the cliffhanger is that the everything blows up when he plugs it in and it looks like all is lost. Um, but it has actually been good for one trip and it's got them back to Kendall. Uh, Kendall. Kemble. Kemble. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so then uh, back on Kemble you get more kind of political intrigue from the delegates uh, they all hate Mavic Chen now because they think that he's, um, he's kind of usurped them and uh, feels that he's superior to them uh, meanwhile he's just totally losing his grasp of reality going absolutely crackers and uh, he, he thinks that the doctor is, is trying to replace him as the Daleks ally rather than defeat them well it's, it's still a great performance by Kevin Stoney though isn't it yeah oh yeah like his, his descent into madness is, is, is really well played I think yeah it's um, 
And I guess Hartner was on holiday this week because other than the very beginning, he's, um, there's no sign of him and everybody's kind of wondering where he is. Well, reading into it, uh, I don't think it was a holiday. I think it was an unplanned um, illness and I think it's around this time that um, John Wells and Donald Tosh kind of like decided to hand in their resignations to the show because they were right. getting frustrated with... They had several clashes with Hartnell um, around this time. And I believe there was also a, like a a one-day strike done by the um, technicians uh, because Hartnell had a bit of a uh, argument with with one of them. Ah, so, right. but obviously being out of the show, um, the BBC kind of like refused Wells' um, suggestion that it's time to get rid of Hartnell and recast. Because mm. I know that's something that they wanted to do in... Um, one of the upcoming stories, the Celestial Toymaker, that they kind of like provisionally planned, didn't they? Yeah, because he, he turns invisible and, and there was some sort of plan that when he came back he'd be a different actor, wasn't there, at one point, I think? He, yeah, so it's kind of like at this stage that I think the BBC and, you know, the powers that be are kind of like looking at seeing, well, you know, perhaps, you know, the outgoing producer and script editor might have something about this because perhaps like the workload's getting too much for for Hartnell and mm. you know obviously he wasn't aware he was getting ill at this point yeah and and the workload was massive because it Doctor Who was on for most of the year at this stage as well wasn't it it wasn't like the sort of 10 12 13 weeks we get now it was uh it was a huge kind of treadmill like production there. yeah it was virtually like kind of like a year wasn't it yeah. obviously and that's why certain characters disappear from certain episodes at certain points because they basically built in the holidays into the production schedule but yeah, yeah you, you're right it's kind of like to the point where it's on like about 46 weeks out of 52 you know um during a year which is a ridiculous schedule yeah yeah it's huge isn't it so uh, i think uh reading somewhere that, that was one of the things that um that sort of um the reason, one of the reasons why Patrick Troughton left as well in the end, uh, that he just you just can't couldn't do it for too long. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then ironically, the next year that they do it, the twenty six episode. Yeah, it's it, a monthly uh, production cycle. Yeah. Uh, and again, yeah, you get put. We stay in that bit longer as well, don't you? Uh, but yeah, I think it does talk in the complete history about how Hartnell didn't get on that well with John Wiles. Um, because he it seems like he was very close to Verity Lambert, um, and and sort of struggled with the uh, with the changeover a bit at the top. Yeah, and that's something that Mark Gate kind of on, didn't he, in the uh, Adventure in Space and Time um, drama? Yeah. That obviously it was that kind of like around this time that William Hartnell's becoming like the the long-standing member of the production. Yeah, and like bewildered at all these changes around him and. Um, apparently, like Verity leaving at the beginning of this production run, because um, I believe Mission to the Unknown was her last credit. Yeah, I think so. And she left, even though she kind of like been involved in the pre-production stages of, of Dark's Master Plan, mm. and that hit him quite hard, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You definitely get that impression. Um, and then, yeah, the uh, they say John Wells 
quit. And this is his only story, really, because he inherited this massive, uh, really demanding 12-episode story, um, which uh, apparently was originally going to be six episodes. Um, but for the, um, the, I think it was like the, the controller at the BBC One or the head of program or something, um, and his mother-in-law was a big fan of the Daleks, and he used her as a sort of a, a barometer of, of public taste. So he said you should extend it to 12 episodes, and uh, and that's why we've got the story we have, which kind of makes me think if this had been a six-parter, it would be regarded as an absolute classic. If you didn't have the just the kind of the filler and the running around and stuff like that, the kind of the, the treading water episodes. Yeah. If it was a really tight six episodes, it would, I think, rightly be regarded as a, as a one of the all-time greats. Yeah, because you kind of like, you do see that it does... It starts off brilliantly, but then, mm. like you say, it does then become a bit of a runaround and co- almost like kind of like reprise of the previous Dalek story, the chase. As in, like, it's like let's hop from here to here to here with the Daleks kind of chasing us and not really taking the kind of like thing too seriously. Yeah. But and like in the like final two episodes, it kind of like then really kind of like grounds back to its original intention. Yeah. Of being this absolute epic which kind of like finally like you know uh, becomes yeah so uh, yeah like so you got so the abandoned planet and the destruction of the time just the destruction of time are the last two parts uh, back on Kemble the the delegates have all been locked away by the Daleks who've interrupted a meeting where Chen's kind of grandstanding and strutting about and saying he's in charge now um, he gets locked up with the rest of them um, and then yeah he's kind of I say really delusionally he thinks Sarah Kingdom's come to rescue him um, because uh, she still believes him but obviously he doesn't uh, and then he fakes his own death when his, uh, his ship blows up uh, and takes Stephen and Sarah hostage to take back to the Daleks as if to try and kind of win win them back over um, but it doesn't work but it's a great scene then when he's with the Daleks and he, he sort of tries to stamp his authority and says I'm in charge and the Dalek just looks at him and he goes well I'll take your silence as, uh, <laughs> as confirmation that you're following my orders and just think this isn't going to end well for you yeah they always get their comeuppance at the end yeah the thing is because the Daleks then take him out and shoot him the thing I think is a shame there is that nobody on earth finds out that he was um, a corrupt uh, with them yeah because uh, nobody's, uh, none of the space security service are there to go back and, and say what happened. Um, so yeah, I just, I just feel sort of slightly disappointed that you know, presumably, as far as Earth is concerned, this this great politician and the guardian of the solar system just went missing on his holidays and never <laughs> came back. Um, and maybe that's kind of um, a kind of disillusion with with current the current political situation where you want um, you want certain people kind of brought to justice and. For people to uh, the followers to realise that they're collaborators or liars or demagogues. Um, so yeah, it's uh, I was thinking, yeah, it's kind of a bit of a waste of opportunity that maybe he's even martyred by this, you know. Well, you, now that you've touched upon that, and it hadn't really occurred to me at the time, but like it's kind of like the intergalactic version of Robert Maxwell, hasn't he? You know, <laughs> as far as the um, the galaxy is concerned, he kind of like went off on his space yacht and kind of like slipped into the ocean yeah. accidentally. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, so. Yeah, well, it, you know, you're glad that he's um, he's got his comeuppance, but I feel like um, 
some something should have happened where uh, it was it was publicised in some way. Uh, but then the the ending to uh, pick up on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, then uh, you get the the final really sort of unsettling eerie bits after that, where the Doctor activates the time destructor and tries to take it back to the TARDIS. Um, I think especially on audio, the, just the kind of the sound effects and the, the desperation of it all. The, the, uh, Sarah, well, St- since Stephen and Sarah back to the TARDIS ahead of him, ahead of him but Sarah stays back um, and gets kind of yeah. caught up in it and obviously ages to death. And it's just, uh, yeah, it's just, just so grim, isn't it? Yeah, and we're also lucky enough that there's photographs of this scene that still exist that were taken as they were filming it because they aged Jean Marsh up and then at a certain point they then replaced her with a very, a, a, a lot older actress, didn't they? Yeah. And apparently um, they then continued to film it, but from what I was reading, that the, the final scene was then edited down once it was viewed as they said, they kind of like went a little bit too far and they said it went too graphic. But it mm-hmm. still packs a punch that, again, you know, you've, you know, you're watching this, you don't know what's coming, mm-hmm. you know, week to week, and here's um, somebody who you've taken on board as one of the Doctor's companions and stuff, and then suddenly, you know, they get caught up in the time destructor and they die. Mm-hmm. It has that emotional wallop. Definitely, yeah. You've been following her for eight episodes, and then within sight of the TARDIS, and uh, you know, kind of resolving the situation. Uh, it's such a such a downbeat ending because um, you know Stephen kind of really helplessly says, you know, like what about Katerina and Brett and Sarah, and the Doctor's kind of saying what a what a waste it is, and then they just get in the TARDIS and, and take off. There's no sort of uh, like kind of light little positive note at the end or anything. It's uh, Oh, other than the fact that they've they've killed all the Daleks on on Kemble. Yeah, and it's um, I know when obviously Wells and and Tosh were kind of like before they resigned, they were intending this apparently to because they'd inherited the the story. They were intending it to well, let's kill the Daleks off at the end, and then we can be done with it and never have them back. Which is kind mm-hmm. of like shooting yourself. In because they're such an iconic part of the show, even at this early stage in the show's life, you know, in only yeah. its third season, that you kind of like do think that had Wells and Tosh stayed, then you know you would have then perhaps like had a replacement actor from Celestial Toymaker onwards. He wouldn't have been Pat- Patrick Trout, probably. Mm. It may not have worked because you've not got that on-screen transition for the viewers to adjust. You're not bringing back. You know, iconic monsters like the Daleks to you know bring keep the viewers engaged that this is still your same show. Yeah, and then potentially you could have been looking if, if they'd stayed in charge of the show. It perhaps because the the viewer figures do really drop off after the Daleks master plan, mm. which so we're still getting nine to ten million viewers a week uh, to the point where I think is it the Savages or something got about four million viewers. Yeah. Uh, you know, so it's kind of like at that point that perhaps, you know, the BBC would have said, well, you know, it's not worked with a new actor, it's time to cancel it and, you know, put something else on on a Saturday night. Yeah, it feels like there's loads of kind of near misses like that, isn't there, where uh, 
because even after Patrick Charlton left and the, the viewership had been in a bit of a decline and they just didn't have anything else to put on, so they they did the first season with, with John Pertwee to see how it worked out, but that kind of restored the uh, restored the viewership and the faith in the series, so so it carried on a bit yeah. longer. I think even at the same time, even it wasn't Derek Sherwin and... Barry, let's still kind of brief that if this doesn't work out, we want you to come up with story ideas and series ideas for something that can replace this. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's around this time that Doctor Who seems to be on a kind of like fine line mm. um, up until the end of the 60s. And it's only as Pertwee then takes over and you then see that year on year rise yeah. to the height where by series 10 and the 10th anniversary, you know, it's getting bumper viewing figures again, and then that kind of like sees it through all the way through to 1989, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah, I guess the the hiatus as well was the next time it started to yeah to get yeah, into jeopardy. Sure. But yeah, it's uh, yeah. When you think like we were talking about all the other shows that that kind of fell by the wayside in the meantime, it's the you know the the ingenuity of recasting and recasting the people that they did um, that's just just kind of kept it going for so long. It's, uh, we're just really lucky to, uh, that we've got so much of it. Uh, although less yeah. it, uh, with the missing episodes, I suppose. Yeah, and, and we're lucky that obviously there were fans like um, Graham Strong. I think who think, yes. did he pass away last year? Yeah. Um, most audio recordings do come from his collection that he kind of like offered to the BBC. Uh, wasn't it in the early nineties? He kind of like said, "Well, I, I've got these." copies and then they started to slowly get released first on audio tape because I remember buying um, Evil of the Daleks and the Macra Terror yeah. I think were the first that got released uh, with narration from Tom Baker and Colin Baker yeah um, I had those in tape as well yeah yeah yeah, and absolutely being transfixed uh, you know by wow I'm kind of like listening to a Doctor Who story that doesn't exist anymore but it's kind of mm. like been turned into an audio play and it was a fascinating thing to then to rediscover these stories through the medium of audio which they weren't originally intended for yeah yeah that's it and then um, I think the end of last year they, they found some in a skip or something there's, there's a story in the Doctor Who magazine that um, they found some some even better quality audios um, in a skip so um, yeah. in 2018 which I'm not sure if that's where the the Daleks Master Plan vinyl is taken from, or whether it's the you know same source as the CD. Um, but yeah, they've got these sort of better quality audios now that to work with. So I guess for any future animations or releases, they've uh, they've got some more source material there. Well, yeah, you've got the upcoming um, animation of the Macro Terror, haven't you? That's coming out. Uh, is it next month? Yeah, March, I think. Yeah, I think now that season eighteen Blu-ray has been put back, they, you've got them within a week of each other or so, I think. Yeah, again, another yeah. delay for the Blu-ray box. <laughs> I suppose if it's the correct errors, though, it's better than um, better than having to send discs back and then wait for the replacement. Yeah, that's so. yeah. Because I remember shortly after we did the podcast that we did for the season twelve um, Tom Baker's series release, um, it was kind of like then discovered the errors and stuff, and I remember sending my discs. Yeah, um, I was sending them my details. 
and then uh, having to wait an eternity for the discs to be sent in because uh, sent back to me, mm. corrected. Yeah, it's always a bit of an anxious, uh, anxious wait because even on the DVDs that happened occasionally, didn't it? I think um, oh, I can't remember which one it was now. Oh, I think one of them was the Invisible Enemy, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I didn't it have something like the the, the episode endings of episode three and four were the wrong way round or something. Yeah, I'm sure it was. Yeah, it's something to do with scenes being uh, being in the wrong order. So yeah, he sent sent my disc off, and I'm thinking, what well, it gets lost in the post? What if the replacement gets lost in the post? Yeah. Was, <laughs> but I think with that instance, I think because they were stuck long in. Um, doing the correction because I remember getting my disc back for that mm-hmm. but then they also sent out a complimentary copy of another story they did yeah I got the hand of fear yeah I remember that I, that. Yeah. <laughs> I got the hand of fear <laughs> it must have been the one they had the most surplus copies of yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think that's all the notes I've got on the Daleks master plan uh, yeah um there's not much else. Obviously, took upon obviously the fact that it wasn't really it was passed, passed to Australia copies, mm. but they deemed it inappropriate for a child audience, so they sent it back and or they said no, we're not broadcasting it. But they don't know if the prints were ever returned. So there's always mm. that possibility that it could turn up one day. You know, as there is, with, I suppose, with all um, missing episodes, bar the feast of Stephen. Yeah. Yeah, we can uh, we can only live in hope. And there's the animation keepers going in the meantime. There is, and and it's great that because they keep filling in gaps in like your DVD collection on your shelf. Yeah. So you get more of actually the Patrick Troughton era is very slowly, slowly growing mm. as they do the animations. I'm hoping that perhaps the next one's going to be Evil of the Daleks. You know, keeping the Dalek theme. Yeah. Uh, with this, but. I suppose this one, as we touched upon earlier, because it doesn't have any telesnaps and so they've got not a lot of reference material to go on, mm. that potentially you're probably looking at the Dalek Master Plan. If their plan is to complete all the stories with animation that are missing, this is probably going to be left to the end because there's no reference material really for them to base it on, is there? Yeah. Yeah, and it, it's there's so many different because I think there's I read somewhere that you know they they prefer to do the ones where you've got the same backgrounds and things, whereas this is a different planet in every episode, isn't it? There's, there's loads of different locations, characters. Uh, it seemed like probably a more expensive outlay for them. Yeah, and I suppose that they haven't got the biggest budgets, mm. and so like you say, they are. The, it's the ones where they can reuse different elements, isn't it? But then, like, like we said earlier, the Daleks are so easy to animate and they did such a brilliant job with the power of the Daleks that, you know, they've got those templates for Daleks animated already. So yeah. surely that should be a bit of a cost-saving thing for them with yeah. regards to animating the missing Dalek episodes. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, they've got, they've got those templates to use, yeah. Um, yeah, be be interesting to see what they announce next because it seemed was it the um, the wheel in space seemed to be getting talked about at the same time as the Macro Terror, but then it was the Macro Terror that was announced and uh, and it has now got the release date. So yeah, that's right because I 
think it then got kind of like misconstrued, didn't it? Because it was ended up as it's a kind of loose cannon style reconstruction, wasn't it? For is it Britbox, which is like the the American version of um, the BBC's iPlayer, where you can buy stories or download them. So I think they've done the reconstruction or they've tested it for the missing episodes for Wheel in Space rather than animating them. Ah, right. I didn't realise that. Yeah. Right. Ah. Well, maybe one day. So, I mean, so well, the Wheel in Space isn't high up my list, I've got to say. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just the completism, yeah. Right. Well, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Been been great discussing this episode, uh, this story with you, um, and uh, yeah, maybe one day I'll buy the uh, the vinyl if it's uh, if it's on sale somewhere. If it doesn't go for too much money on eBay, yeah, everybody bought the <laughs> copy. Definitely. So, uh, where can we find you on Twitter? It's Django Mac seventy two, and you can find me if you don't follow me is at trap one underscore, and you can find all the previous trap one podcasts at trap one dot uh, including all the ones that Jason's been on in the past. Thanks very much for listening. Uh, next week, I uh, mentioned it before, sticking with, with epic Dalek stories, going to talk about the Dalek audio annual with Denise Sutton. Uh, so hopefully you can join me then. Thanks very much. Goodbye. Goodbye.